0: This is the Jay scott outdoors podcast on western big game hunting and fishing brought to you by gohunt.com insider research faster hunt more go to gohunt.com forward slash insider and join today i'm your host Jay scott and i live and breathe hunting and fishing spending half the year in the field experiencing god's creation i hope you'll enjoy hearing about our adventures Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have Greg Krogh of Mogollon Rim Outfitters. Greg, I've known him for years and he is one of the West's best outfitters. Uh, he has been known to harvest some phenomenal trophies uh, both in Arizona and in Nevada and uh, is an incredible hunter, incredible guide, and, and a very, very nice guy. Uh, I've uh, had the privilege of uh, guiding in the same state here in my home state of Arizona, and uh, it's just a privilege to have him on the show today to share some of his knowledge and some of his passion that he has for for hunting uh, western game, and uh, Greg, it's great to have you. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. I want to talk to you first, we're going to get into Nevada and Arizona and the different things that you do with on Rim Outfitters uh, in these states Uh, I wanted to start out with Nevada and uh, tell me a little bit about your background hunting in Nevada as far as uh, how long you've been over there and uh, how much time do you approximately spend a year over there scouting and guiding
1: oh I've been doing Nevada for probably about it's probably about 20 years now um, I started off in Arizona for about 10 years before going there, and then I just I decided to pick up Nevada because there was a lot of dead time in August and also October where I wasn't doing anything in Arizona, so the dates kind of uh, worked out to where I could pick up a whole lot more work by going over there and doing that. I got into it through a friend of mine that was over there deer hunting. And he was telling me about how he was putting in with an outfitter and and uh, drawing these these uh, limited tags, and they had a special program for guides. And so I just looked into it, and uh, about twenty years ago I started a, a blind guys over there, and I've been doing it ever since.
0: That's uh, that's awesome. I know you've had some incredible success over there. Can you talk a little bit about the terrain in Nevada as it maybe compares to Arizona? Uh, I have not hunted Nevada myself, but from what I understand, it's 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 uh, pretty arid and um you know big big country uh can you talk a little bit about nevada and maybe how it differs uh from other places you've hunted
1: yeah you know it's uh compared to arizona you know it's um believe it or not it's i feel like there's more water over there it's a lot of people it's really surprising when they get there you, you picture vegas when you think of nevada. <laughs> you know you once you drive about an hour or so north of vegas you know, eh, maybe an hour and a half when you start getting north there, you start getting to that juniper country. And as you get further up into the units, I hunt mostly central and uh, eastern Nevada, like south central and eastern Nevada along the Utah to border border and then west, you know, maybe 150 miles to the west of the Utah border, all that country. And it's, it's incredibly uh, forested compared to what people think. You know, it's got giant mountain ranges that run for miles and miles. And uh, it's just, it's different in Arizona that it's, it's more north-south mountain ranges and lots of them where you'll have an entire range that will run for – drive for an hour along it, you know, and, and uh, they get all the way up and, you know, you're talking three and 4,000 vertical feet change, you know, from the valley floor up. And, and once you get into that country, it's, it's, it seems like it's a lot cooler than it is over here. The elk hunting over there is a lot cooler as far as temperature-wise. I mean, you're hunting in everything from aspens, you know, up on the tops of the mountains and above tree line type stuff to uh, down in the low stuff is a lot more like Arizona, a lot of juniper country in the low country. And there's elk from the top of the mountains to the bottom. So it's, it's really unique in the sense that you're uh, you know, on one hunt, you might be hunting one day where you're, you know, uh, it's 90 something degrees during the day. And then the next day you might be hunting that same unit where you're getting snowed on, on top of the mountain and it's on an archery elk hunt. So it's, I love it for that reason it's just it's very unique it's extremely glassable and uh it's a lot different in uh a lot of different ways Arizona is a lot more calling um the seasons over there is uh they're a lot earlier they start like august twenty fifth for the elk so a lot of our archery elk hunts are spot and stock we've uh i mean I've been guiding over there now for twenty years and i don't i'm i can i'm positive I've never called in a bull
0: <laughs> so is, is it the fact that just the timing of the season, or do they not bugle as much, or is it just the fact that it's early and they're not really fired up in the rut yet?
1: Well, you know, it's, it's a little bit of both there. You know, we try, to, we try to hunt them early and, you know, before they get with all the cows. And, um, and so they're, they're actually, believe it or not, they're actually very vocal in August. Um, they just, they're not fired up in the rut, but they're bugle but you'll, it's nothing to be hunting bulls when they're still together with other bulls while we're stalking them, you know? And, uh, some of the best bulls we've taken over there have been by themselves, you know, without, they're not even on cows, which is what lends itself more to the spot and stock. And, and, uh, we just haven't really tried calling them over there. We've been hunting specific bulls each year that we're trying to kill. And it just seems like whenever we, you know, in the very beginning, we tried calling and we would call, you'd call bulls in, but we were calling in the wrong bulls, you know? And We finally just quit doing it, you know, and uh, the last couple of years, I haven't even had a call with me on that archery elk hunt.
0: Very interesting. Uh, Greg, I I don't know for a fact, but I have heard that you guys actually have harvested the largest typical and non-typical elk over the years hunting there. Can you tell me a little bit about, first, if that's true, and and a little bit about both of those bulls?
1: Yeah, to my knowledge, we've shot the, the largest. This is, you know, with archery tackle, uh randy omer killed the non-typical uh that was uh gross like 416 that was to my knowledge that's still the largest non-typical kill with the bow they don't have a separate category so you have to actually go through the record book and look at you know when they were killed to tell and then we've also killed the largest typical and that was with jack brittingham about three years ago that was a 409 six point that
0: netted i believe 404 even wow fantastic bulls um and and how common, uh, you know, it seems like anymore in Arizona, a 400-inch bull, no matter what people think, they just seem to be f- fewer and further between and, and, you know, maybe one or two maybe in the state every year get harvested. Uh, how does that compare as far as the high-end trophy quality in Nevada? Uh, are there? Would you say there's more of those high-end bulls or, or is it similar?
1: You know, it's funny. It seems like Arizona will pull out a couple, like you're talking, you know, a couple every year or every other year, there'll be these bulls that are in the 430s and 440s you hear about in Arizona. They're just those real rare bulls. Whereas Nevada hasn't doesn't just hasn't been producing those type of bulls. Now the bulls that are in the right around 400, I think there's just as many, if not more being uh, killed over in Nevada, especially when you consider how, how much fewer tags they give than over here. Um, The the tags over there, you know, these, these units that we're hunting, you know, they might have two non-resident tags total, and uh, and that's for five units. You know, they're huge areas that give 30 tags. For five, you know, a unit that would be, I'm, I'm trying to compare it in size to something in Arizona, it would be like hunting, you know, seven, nine, and ten together. And and have wow. a total of 30 tags in it is, is for the archery hunts. You have very little pressure. Um, you almost never see people on the archery hunts at all on those archery hunts. So-
0: so it actually creates an environment that's a very enjoyable hunt because you don't have where the same amount of country, you might have 500 tags in Arizona. So what I hear you saying is just from an enjoyable standpoint, it's fantastic. Oh, it's,
1: it's funny. I go, you know, because I hunt both states and, you know, in Arizona, there's a lot of tags given out in Arizona. And then I go to Nevada. and I mean, I've gone, I've gone months over there without running into a hunter in the field. You know, you know, in that, you know, going from an archery deer to a to a an archery elk and and uh, not seeing anybody, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I haven't seen a car on a road somewhere, but but in all the years I've been guiding over there for archery elk, I can't remember ever hunting a bull that somebody else was hunting except for one time, and that was a friend of ours, Dan Evans, uh, was camp near us, and he was a friend of Randy's and mine, and he was camp near us, and uh, he was hunting a bull. We were both hunting the same bull one time just by coincidence. And so we ran into each other one day, and, and then we kind of worked out a deal to where we weren't stepping all over each other every day. But other than that one time, I just can't remember ever hunting a bull that somebody else was hunting, you know, or having to worry about that. Whereas in Arizona, I feel like, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: every morning you got 12 guys yeah, you're dealing it's just, with.
1: It's a lot different. And that's the reason I really enjoy it over there. You just don't see anybody. Um, I know, I believe it was two years ago, um, the year after Jack shot that, that uh, his state record typical, we had a tag, and there were two different bulls that were just enormous six points, and they were in an area that I thought for sure there would be people just because it wasn't really that far from down, and we hunted those bulls for, I think, 18 days and never saw another vehicle within miles of there, never saw another hunter, and we ended up shooting one of them, and we hunted the other one every day and got on, and we just never were able to – you can get multiple tags there and we never did get that other one but we never saw a person the whole time we were in there
0: <laughs> that is that's unbelievable uh talk a little bit about the draw um I'll be honest with you um I've never applied for Nevada and um was actually uh considering applying cuz I had heard that you can actually it's unlike Arizona you can actually draw with one or two points is that true or or tell me a little bit how their draw works and You know, if you don't have a bunch of points, is it even worth applying for? Well,
1: you are right in the fact that they don't set aside, uh, they don't have a bonus point pass like Arizona or some of these other states, Utah, Wyoming, and it's good in some ways in the sense that you could start off, for example, on the deer hunt last, uh, we just had the draw results out for deer, and uh, the the most difficult tag to draw over there or the most sought after tag is, is 241 to 245. And I drew it with a client that had one point. Wow. He drew the hardest. There was only one non-resident tag. um, And everybody else's points in the system are squared. So if you had 10 points, you would get 100 chances, 100, you know, draw numbers. sure. To get your lowest one. He had one. So one squared would be one. And then they give you one more for your application. So he had a total of two chances, if you will, versus, you know, two or 300 other people that applied for that unit that had an average of eight points, you know, eight to 10 points. So
0: it is. So what I hear you saying is
1: absolutely apply because it can happen. Absolutely. You know, this guy drew it with one point and uh, you know, it's very difficult obviously, you know, statistically, but someone's got to draw them and and they do not set aside any. So, and that's something that they're really proud of. And the fact that, you know, it's, it's good for new hunter recruitment. You know, it's, it's, for example, in Arizona, it's hard to convince somebody right now to start putting in, for the strip, when they know that there's you know nineteen point numbers ahead of them
0: that all have to be wiped
1: out before they even have a chance to be considered
0: sure so in that sure. Regard, and, it's nice and and in Nevada uh is there hundred and fifty or sixty or whatever it is uh license fee that I assume that you just have to buy and then you apply, and that's kind of your. You know, there's an application fee. Do you have to float the money up front, or is can you do it on a credit card? Can you talk a little bit about how that works? Yeah, they
1: have it on a credit card,
0: and um, the, I believe the license for the non-resident is 142, and they have
1: a $15 application fee. And only sure. billed similar to Arizona. If you draw the tag, then you are billed. If not, then you just billed for the uh, just for the license.
0: Gotcha. And um, Greg, is there also a landowner um, program there or conservation permits or, you know, I I, I believe they have a governor's tag. Can you talk a little bit about other ways to get a tag? Uh, And obviously the listeners can contact you directly, but talk a little bit about that. Yeah, They have what's
1: called landowner compensation tags and and basically it's for, you know, to make up for crop damage and whatnot. They'll do, they do counts. And I believe it, for deer, it's every 50 deer on the time they choose. I think they get two nights to do it. Um, if they have on their private property, on their fields, for every 50 deer, they get a landowner tag or a landowner compensation tag. Um, and then for elk, I'm not quite sure what the number is, but they do the same thing for elk. So different rant, and these, are, these tags are – they're good for the whole unit. They're not just for the private. So it's no different than drawing a tag. If you acquire – a landowner compensation tag for deer, it's no different than drawing the tag Okay. You know, um, and you can buy multiples. Um, Nevada is different in a lot of states that you can shoot more than one deer or elk if you can you know, secure the tags.
0: Sure and um, they also have what they call a silver state tag which is a raffle and then do they have auction tags as well per unit or is it just an auction tag for the, for the whole state?
1: Uh, they have the,
0: they have what, you know what we call the
1: au- this like, the auction tag or they call it the I can't I'm embarrassed I don't know what they call it the sportsman's tag okay. um, but it's, you know basically an auction tag that goes off at a raffle and then they have what's called the silver state tag um, which is uh, supposed to be like the, the working man's tag where you can only buy one tag for it you can't go and buy hundreds of raffle tickets you can buy one application I think it's ten dollars and you apply when you're applying for the other species, you can, and, uh, in fact, a good friend of mine drew the tag last year, the silver state deer tag. And, he, and, uh,
0: Schillinger, right? Yeah, Jason Schillinger did. And you guys shot an awesome buck. I remember seeing that like a 240 type of buck, wasn't it? Yeah,
1: he, he got a great deer and we got to give props out there to the guy that found him. And, uh, that was Doyle's son, Doyle Moss's son, Cameron. And, uh-huh. uh, he actually found that buck and, uh, Doyle called me in the middle of the night and found out that we had the tag. And, um, I was just talking about that yesterday with Doyle. Uh, you know, we had a couple of bucks that we were trying to hunt. Um, but we had promised our bow hunters that, you know, we weren't going to basically be over there scouting for their hunt and then come in with Jason and shoot it before they got there. So we had two really big bucks that we were trying to kill, but we had worked out the deal with Jason where no one was allowed to hunt him until after the archer hunt was over. Then he could come in and do it. And then when Doyle called, I told Jason, he was crazy. Doyle sent me a picture of that buck. And I said, you know, you're splitting hairs. They're about, they're about the same size as the two deer we have, and you can have him, you know, we can get him tomorrow. And uh, Doyle was kind enough to just give it to us. They didn't want anything, any kind of compensation whatsoever. Just, uh, he wanted his son to be able to hold that buck that he had found. So we got to go up there and, uh, and, uh, shoot it. But like I said, that was all him. Not, I mean, I was there, but that was all Doyle's son, Cameron.
0: Well that's a that's an awesome story. Uh uh awesome to see two outfitters working together and, and you know, Jason Schillinger's obviously a great guy, um and uh, shot a really nice uh desert bighorn the year before and um so he had a heck of a run there. Um he may go uh five, ten years now without ever drawing anything and, and uh uh you know, he definitely got his money's worth in those those couple of tags for sure. Um, Greg, I want to talk to you about, you You do archery elk and have had tremendous success on the archery elk hunt. Um, do they have an early rifle or muzzleloader type of hunt and or, uh, I know that the late hunts over there are actually phenomenal hunts from what I've heard and, and a lot of elk, great glassing. Uh, the bulls aren't broke up quite as bad as they are in Arizona. Can you touch on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, you know, they do have, it's very limited. They've got a And they're not in, you know, over there it's set up in regions and it's a little bit different than Arizona in the sense that not all guides can guide everywhere because of, they can statewide with their permits, but they don't issue out forest service permits to anybody over there. It's very limited. So the units that have the early hunts, that's why I'm not that familiar with them. There's one, I believe in the 16 units, the monitor range, but it's up on the forest. I don't, I don't have a forest service permit for over there. So I don't ever hunt that early rifle hunt. And I think there's only one tag. Um, for a non-resident, I think there might be just three or four total, or something like that. And then they have a muzzleloader hunt up north, but those aren't really the premium units. The premium units don't have any early bull hunts, and I really believe that's why they have so many good bulls. Like you were, you know, touching on the late season hunt being so good. You know, when you compare it to Arizona, where you know certain units that are great genetics, like Unit 10, that give out a hundred early trophy tags, it really makes it hard for a mature bull to make it through that that trophy hunt every year, you know, and get that age on that he needs to get really big. Whereas in Nevada, they're so limited on the archery tags in the rut. You know, some of these units have 17, 20 tags, you know, that are huge areas. And then the only other hunts they have are late season muzzleloader and late season rifle. So I think that's a big part of why they've got so many mature bulls over there. And, and that late hunt is a phenomenal hunt. You, you know, it's
0: uh, when it When is that late hunt generally? And, and talk to me about how those hunts usually go down, you know? Is there a lot of preseason scouting, and and you go in after specific bulls, or are you just getting up in big country and glassing big areas and, and and finding a lot of different bulls?
1: You know, it's a little bit of both. On that late hunt, um, it's uh, it's just a ton of glassing. You know, on those early hunts, like the archery hunts, the archery elk, and the and the uh, and the archery deer, it's tons of scouting. I go over there on the around the fourth of July every year, and I'm there until. Um, I spend almost 60 straight days there. Starting. My family goes with me in, in, uh, in July, and then in August, starting that they come back for school, and then my hunts start over there on, right around August 10th on the elk. So all those um, are all found. We're pretty much hunting stuff we found in July and August on those hunts. But on the late hunts, those elk move, and then you're kind of starting all over, and, and you're hunting traditional winter range stuff. Um, I mean, you're scouting that week before, but it's not something where you can go and hunt a bull you know, they sure. move quite a bit from where they were
0: earlier the yeah they move and maybe even got shot in the early season so it's not as predictable as the, the early season right it's, uh, it's
1: just really big glassing it's uh i mean for someone who likes to glass it's a dream hunt you can you know you can see anywhere from you know 20 to 30 bulls a day on average you know on those late hunts and they definitely don't seem to be as broke up here um and I, i'm not quite sure what the reason is um but we, you know, I'm not saying, you know, you don't see broken up bulls, but not, not nearly as bad as what it seems like you see here in Arizona. And, uh, you know, the last three years, I don't, I think the last three bulls we've killed over there in the last three years have been, uh, not one of them has had even an inch broken off.
0: You know, talk to me about some of the size of bulls on the late hunts um, that you've killed over the years, maybe give me kind of the average, and then maybe give me some of the, the more top-end bulls um, that that you've shot over the years on the late hunts, there.
1: No, those late hunts are just they're so consistent. That's what I like about them. Is you know I think in all the years we've been doing it, you know over there, I think we've killed one late-season bull that was under 350, and uh, one one bull that I wow going up. I'm just thinking about as we've killed one that was under 350, and we've had only one or two people not shoot an elk. You know, um, in the last you know. What, close to 20 years over there. It's, they're just, but we haven't killed on those late hunts. You know, we shoot a lot. I bet you our average is somewhere in the mid to high 360s on those late hunts on the, wow. which is a lot better than, you know, an average and say, a, you know, the late hunts that we do here in Arizona. Um, the largest bulls we've killed over there on the late hunts, um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, I'm going over years of them. You know, they're, we've killed, Couple of bulls who were, you know, just the 400 inch right at 400, and then a lot of bulls in the three, not a lot, but, you know, a few in the 390s, uh, quite a few in the 380s, and then a lot in the 360s and 370s.
0: So, kind of uh, someone looking at a benchmark to come over and hunt with you. I mean, you're going to have a probably a good chance at a, a 60s type of bull yeah. and, and, and maybe better. Uh, yeah, if a
1: guy really holds out. Um you know, and it's different every year. I hate saying that because that seems so unrealistic when it comes out of my mouth, but it, it is. You know, that's in the last, you know, last year I took a young guy that was able to just go anywhere, you know, good hunter, uh, John Bochi out of Oregon. And, you know, he was able to go anywhere. And we struggled last year. And it was funny because everybody it seemed like everybody was killing giant bulls last year and we were struggling, you know, we just weren't getting on any he held out and then on the last day he shot a really nice bull on that last day. And it, so it all worked out in the end, but that, you know, it's definitely not as easy now as it was, you know, five, 10 years ago over there. Um, but we're still managing to get those bulls, but we're not getting as many of the real high, high end on those late hunts as we did, you know, 10 years ago, just because there's, they're issuing a few more tags, but it's, I think it's really realistic. I think at least a 50 50 shot of killing a bull over three sixty
0: which oh, for a general
1: late hunt, that's, that's pretty impressive.
0: That is impressive. And, and give me an idea on units as far as how many uh, late tags total are they issuing and, and maybe how many late hunters do you take uh, uh, in a season? I mean, are you taking four or five late hunters or are you taking, you know, 15, 20? Give me kind of an idea of, of some of the numbers you run and, and have run over the last say 20 years. You know,
1: it's actually, we don't, I don't, I really have never been a part of running big camps. I have, I do very small in Nevada. Almost never do we have more than two guys in a camp. And on those late elk hunts, I call them the late elk hunts because they're in November. It's actually in the re, in the regs, they call it the early hunt. They have an early and a late, which is an early November and then a late November elk hunt. They're both late hunts, but um, they're, they're listed as early. I typically the last three years it's usually just me and I take one guy and it's because that time of year everything is all my guides are busy doing other stuff they're back here in Arizona doing stuff and you know they're getting ready to come back to start scouting for either the street you know uh, Paul Stewart likes to come back and do the strip so he'll come over here and and, um, and do that and so it's usually just me and I'm out of help by then that last hunt of the year is that's the last hunt I do in Nevada every year and it's usually just me so typically I just have one guy, and every once in a while we'll, we'll have two if I can get one of my guys to stick around. But um, So it's usually just one guy a year, and I don't think I've ever had more than two gotcha. in the last,
0: you know, 15, 20 years. Um, Greg, talk to me a little bit about your tactics as far as – and we're going to talk about deer here in just a second. Um, but uh, tactics for scouting for your elk uh, on those late season hunts um is it just this matter of getting up high and glassing or are there specific areas as far as um you know thick cover what are you looking for when you're scouting for those late bulls it's mostly just glassing i mean
1: in traditional places where you know these bulls like to go and get away we try to get away from the people and and uh it's just like arizona those big bulls when they get rutted out they're trying to they get so rutted out after that rut they're just trying to find some place where they're not getting bothered where they can get food and water and do as little moving as possible and so we usually hike into those types of places and and there is just it's extremely glassable country you know these ranges are so big that you know you can look at a ton of country and I believe over there it's just a matter of you know sheer number of elk you know x number of elk you look at you're finally going to find the right one you know so I try to I don't do a lot of I really don't do a ton of backpacking on that stuff because it really limits you. You know, you you spend all that time going into the head of one drainage and then you're going to look at five or six pools. Whereas if you, you know, use a lot of vehicles and sense of, you know, we'll drive to one drainage and then do a 30-minute hike and look at it from the bottom with real big glass so that we can look at it and get
0: on to the next one. So we're not – Staying mobile and being able to bounce around. Yeah, and
1: using really, you know, that stuff over there is – it's even more – it's even more set up for long range glassing you know the 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 big glasses over there even more so than even arizona because you can there's so many of these mountain ranges that have roads around the bases of them where you can be 3 miles away and and look you know at an entire face of a mountain and then and then drive 3 miles and look at three more drainages you know and
0: yeah It almost sounds like sheep hunting here in in Arizona where you can drive the perimeter and use your optics to, to find the game. Uh, tell me about your long range glassing, uh, which, which, uh, long range glasses are you using? Uh, and, um, how long have you been using the long range glass?
1: You know, I use, I have two different types. I use the, um, I use the doctor wide angle forties and I've had them for about 20 years now. Um, And then I've also got – I actually just bought a new pair um, about two months ago. I had the – the original pair I had, I think, was one of the first ones that ever came. Me and Randy Ulmer bought two pairs, and I believe they were the first two. I don't know if his were or mine, but they came together in the same box 20 years ago. And I've worn the coatings off them, so I finally bought a new pair the other
0: day. And I also have a pair of the Coas. um, Can you you contrast the two? I I also had the Dr. Forty Super Wide Angles. Um, and then I got the Koas and I ended up selling the doctors. But I hear the new doctors are really good. Could you maybe give me a compare and contrast there?
1: You know, it's, I, you know I'm, we've been, I've been doing a lot of uh, checking on this just as of recently because, you know, the, when I first looked through the Koas, I just loved them. You know, I, I looked through them. I thought they were really clear. And ironically, the one thing I didn't like about them was the angled eyepiece which in the end is what I like about them the most. Now, I have a, I, I, it helped me discover I had a, a pinched nerve in my neck from using the doctors where I was you know, lifting, you know, kind of sitting in there straight and I was tilting my chin up and I was, ended up pinching and getting some nerve damage in my neck. And I've had it for years. I didn't even realize what it was coming from. And then when I got the COAs, it immediately went away within a month and uh, from you know, a more relaxed, looking with your chin down type of deal. So I was, I was really sold on them and I still think they're a great glass but i i personally like the the longer magnification you know um I, so
0: the 40 power as opposed to the 32 yeah, power of the costa a lot coast? of
1: people that when they compare them side by side myself included and i did the same thing you know i set them up on a hillside and i looked through the, the coa 30s or 32s and then i looked through the doctors and i was sold and i went and bought a pair and you know, but you're sitting there focused on one thing and, uh, and you're comparing the two. But what you got to take into account is the doctors are 40 power, so they aren't quite as clear. You know, there is definitely a crispness, you know, a clarity difference between the two. But I think it comes more from the extra magnification than it does the quality of the optics. And the reason I say that is I, I went back and I can remember when I looked through the, 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 uh, the HD 30s in in doctor they were definitely clearer than my 40s you know um but i chose to go with the 40s because i like the extra magnification and i tested it a little bit this year down in mexico and um i was able you know uh for really long range glass i like the doctors better but for that mid-range stuff i think the coas are going to be better because of the clarity when you don't need that extra magnification i think the coas are certainly clearer but i like for a guy that's you know like you guys that are really into the coos deer you know that's I think those codes would be awesome, you know, for that type of stuff, because you can use them, you know, at a mile and a half and really pick stuff apart. Whereas, you know, on, on stuff where you're looking like in Mexico, the ranch, you know, it was more of a product of my specific spots. I hunt where I hunt in Mexico, the ranches, it has one knob and the deer are almost three and a half miles from that knob. And when I used my forties, when I used my 30s this year, I didn't feel – I feel like I was really struggling. I thought there were less deer on the place. So I was finding less deer. And then I switched to the 40s, and I started finding the deer again. And uh, so at the long extremity distances, I did better with the doctors. But then at the middle stuff that was, you know, two to three miles, I did better with the coas.
0: Interesting. Uh, and then real quick, uh, you had the old doctors that are, say, 20 years old. Tell me about the new doctors, how they compare specifically to the old pair. Because mine that I used to have, I want to say they're probably 10 years ago. They were the, the the 40 HD super wide angle. I understand the newer ones are, are, I've heard, quite a bit better. What is your thought just comparing the doctors to each other?
1: Um, for sure, the new ones are better. I um, You know, I, I, uh, the biggest problem with the old ones were, is the rubber eyepieces on them.
0: Yes. I cut those off. I did too. I was going to
1: say, because I just, I had a buddy that wanted to sell me a pair about a month ago and I was going to pick him up for a friend. And when he came over to the house to, to test them, he looked through mine he said, why are you so much clearer? And then I told him I cut the eyepieces off and then he cut his off and then he wouldn't sell them to me after that.
0: <laughs> and he was trying- I just think you, you pick up a much wider angle and you can get your eyeballs actually closer into the glass and, um, that was a, that was a night and day difference for me. Um, how do the new eyepieces, uh, do you have to cut the rubber off on those? No, you
1: don't. And in fact, that was what I noticed. They were even bigger when you t- I took the rubber off of my old ones completely and cut it off with an exacto knife. And then I took the new ones and I was looking through a pair because I was trying to decide I was going to buy a new pair. and I didn't know if it was much of a difference between the HD and the regular. So I compared mine to the new HDs and when you set it up on a hillside, at, say, a mile and a half, and you were looking at the same, say, we were looking at a prickly pear patch on an archery deer hunt this last January, I compared it, and I couldn't, I could see a little bit of a difference, but not much, but then, when we went and looked into the shaded, you know, at a, like a 90 degree of, where the sun was off to our left, and we were looking at this these slopes that were shaded, with the sun off to the side of us, it was night and day, it was a huge difference, um, okay. I, I noticed that the wide angle, I mean, the, the new wide angle with the HD, or I believe they call them HD, but, um, or ED or HD. Yeah, and, whatever. Yeah, they was. were they were considerably, considerably clearer than the old style was when I was looking into, shade, you know, which is the stuff you're looking at when you're glassing. Oh, sure. When you're looking at the sunny hillside, it wasn't that, you know, wasn't that much of a difference. A little bit, but not much. But when you started looking into shade and stuff like that, it was a huge, it picked up a lot more light and the front pupils, the entrance, I don't know what you I guess what are those called the the, the front end.
0: The, the ocular the ocular lens on um, the front is camera. much bigger,
1: even bigger than the other ones when you cut it off. they're considerably okay. bigger. so that, that allows a lot
0: more light gathering, I think, and, and it was a lot lot less eye fatigue, so I'm, I've been really impressed with the new ones. That's great. That's, that's great uh, info. I've actually been looking for someone that's tried them and, and um, have you used them a full season yet or, or um, how long have you used the new doctors? I've
1: only used the new ones. Um, I sold my old ones and I used this, I used the COAs uh, the entire season this year. And then okay. I think in December, I picked up the new ones again and started using the new, uh, I started using both of them in December. And, and then I did all my archery hunts and I went down to Mexico with a buddy and I used those down there. So, I mean, I I used them enough. I think I did six or seven trips and I was was extremely impressed with them.
0: Okay, sounds good. And that's the 40 40 power, super wide angle, whatever it is, HD or ED or whatever they're calling it. Yep, that's correct. Okay, great. Um, Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, uh, Nevada mule deer, Uh, as much success as you've had in the elk arena in nevada you've you've equally had as much success uh or more maybe i i mean unbelievable bucks you guys have harvested over there in nevada um walk me through a little bit of of uh you know the, the the buck hunting over there and and um how how it goes
1: you know it's we do a lot of archery deer hunting over there and um that's probably what i'm enjoy doing the most over there as those archery deer hunts. And, you know, we, we do the rifle hunts also. We're hunting the same deer. We, we go over there in July and, uh, you know, do a lot of scouting in July and August. And then once we start bow hunting those deer, you know, whichever deer we don't get on the archery hunt, they, we, we end up coming back and, and then hunting with the rifle in October. So it's mo- it's all spot and stock, um, lots and lots of glassing and
0: uh, just a lot of, just a lot of time behind the glass, really. And uh, what are some of the bucks? Like, let's say you drew an archery tag in a unit that you like. Um, You know, how many bucks a day Um, and how long are the seasons? And what are some of the bucks that you guys have killed over the years, just numbers wise, uh, score wise?
1: You know, um, the, the seasons are from August 8th. I believe it is now, or maybe the 10th, it, it changes every couple of years, but it's right around early August until around the September 7th to the 10th. So it's a real long, over 30 day long season uh, for the archery deer. Um, and uh, the, in the units we're hunting, they're pretty high densities of deer. Um, sometimes you'll see, it depend on what buck you're hunting, but when you're out there scouting, you know, we'll see anywhere from 30 to 40 bucks a day. And then once we find a buck that we're, you know, zero in on a buck we're going to hunt, if he's in an area that's low density, we, you know, we might not see very many, but um, it depends on what what area he's in. There's certain parts of these units that have lots of deer, and there's other parts that are pretty low density. For whatever reason, it seems like a lot of the bigger bucks are in lower density areas. So we don't don't see as many once we start, you know, if, if a guy's over there trying to kill a 180, so 190 deer you're going to see a lot of deer you know if you're trying to hunt one specific deer that we found that's over 200 then you know that's probably the only you're going to see that deer and maybe you know a couple of other bucks i remember 3 years ago with briddingham we were hunting a big deer and um, i mean we basically saw that buck or no deer for 10 or 12 straight days you know but
0: did you did you end up getting him killed we,
1: on that particular one we did not get him killed that was the i think on that year, we did not, we didn't, we actually didn't get him. We ended up taking a different one.
0: Interesting. You've shot some phenomenal bucks. What are some of the high-end bucks that you've shot on that archery hunt as far as score?
1: Um, you know, uh, Randy Omer killed a, a 242-inch deer with me. Um, that was about 10 years ago. Um, he killed another deer that was he, I think he killed three deer over 200 inches over there. And then um, we haven't been hunting together lately. I've been hunting with Jack Brittingham for the last, oh, six or seven years. And I think Jack's killed, oh, between Jack and, and Jason Campbell had the tag over there. And, and uh, Jason shot a 20, 209 typical with a five-inch extra that went like 214. And then Brittingham has killed about six bucks now over there in the last five years that are averaging around 203, I believe. On that's year. fantastic. So that one he did not, and that he's had two years where we've been, you know, he's he's kind of a go big or go home kind of guy. And yeah. uh, we've hunted a couple of, the two years we, I think in the last six there's been twice where he didn't fill a tag, and, and those were years we were actually hunting our best buck. We just weren't able to kill him that year.
0: Sure, well, that's how it goes sometimes, but, uh, you know, going after targeting a specific buck is a lot of fun. Um, uh, tell me about how sometimes mentally when you found a giant buck that you want to go after and the grind of the hunt takes place, what what are some of the things you do to just stay charged and stay going? Um, what What advice can you give when you've you know, you're into the 7, 8, 10, 12 day of, of, of hunting that buck. How do you stay going?
1: You know, on it, it probably doesn't sound very good, but take a break for a day.
0: <laughs> <That's> what... <laughs> Instead of grind it out, just rest oh, up. Just, and, and... We,
1: we, a great example of that was three years ago, uh, Jack and I were hunting a buck that was around a 230-inch non-tip in velvet. We ended up killing the buck later on in the rifle, and I think he was like 222. So in velvet, we thought he was right around 230. And it was a buck that I had been watching all summer and found. And uh, Jack and I were hunting him, and we had a stalk on him on opening day, opening morning. Jack actually drew his bow on the buck and got in uh, really close. Like 30, if I remember right, it was about thirty-five yards. He drew his bow as the buck stepped behind a bush, and when he came back out on the other side, he Jack thought he was a little bit further away. You know, like maybe he'd move when he was behind that tree, and so Jack led up and rearranged him and I'm going off of memory It's something to that effect. He went to rearrange him. And when he did, when he was putting his vinyls back down, he went to redraw. There was another buck that we hadn't seen. That was about 50 to 60 yards to the left of this buck. And I think he saw Jack is what Jack told me. And when that buck did, he kind of stomped his foot a little bit and that buck, the big buck turned and kind of stared down Jack for a while. And he never really spooked. He just kind of turned and walked into this little group of trees. And we did not see that deer again for 60 days.
0: Oh my! And
1: goodness. I know that we hunted him. It wasn't just me. It wasn't just one person either. Jack and I looked. Uh, a buddy of mine, Drummond Lynch, he came out and looked for probably 10 days. Jason Campbell came and helped me for probably at least a week with his brother. Paul Stewart came out and helped me look for uh, at least two weeks. So we had.
0: Talk about some hired, hired guns looking for you, man, that deer, that deer had some serious eyes looking at We him. could
1: not refine that deer. And at one point, I think Jack and I had 18 days and Jack was living in a cave and uh, <laughs> I, we weren't even camped together. So we didn't even have each other to talk to. We were camped separately <laughs> because he needed to be in position if we could find him. And I was further away, we were both, you know, backpacked. And so, you know, we would make contact either through a, a satellite phone or a, or a radio to, and after about 18 days, Jack called me on the radio and said, we really need to get out of here and take a break for it. No one else was hunting the buck. So we hiked out and we uh, met our families in Vegas for one night and with our kids and went swimming and then we turned around and came back and then it was, and then it was, then it made it a lot easier. And we ended up having a lot. So every once in a while, I think it's a good. idea just take a break. I mean, you can't, if there's somebody else hunting the buck, obviously, but when you've got a 30 day season, um, you know, I'm it's, I don't have much trouble getting motivated on big deer. I, I have a hard time leaving, especially if there's someone else I think knows about the deer. But I think that was the best thing in the world we could have done to that because we just, I don't, we never did find that deer and we hunted him for 30 days. And uh, Jack ended up shooting the number, he had, he shot the number two buck. And uh, we hunted that buck till the very end and never got him. And, uh, and then we ended up, he just showed up in the exact same spot um, on opening day of the rifle season, if you can believe that that's unreal and uh then we were we weren't even in there hunting I'd given up there were two lions in the area I thought one of the lions had killed him I was convinced because it was real glassable country and I'd found him every day for a month and all of a sudden when he disappeared like that we thought he was gone and then I believe it was opening day of the rifle hunt Paul Stewart was uh helping me and uh we were on different points classing and Paul said he had him and I thought he meant the buck we were looking for the other buck who <laughs> that was still in there and uh, I asked him if he looked as heavy in velvet. He said, no, not that one, the big buck. I've got the buck, and I I just couldn't believe it, you know, and then we went in there and killed him that day, so that was 60-something days that deer disappeared, so.
0: That's an awesome story. Wow, congratulations on that. Uh, Greg, one thing I forgot to ask you um, when we were talking about Nevada elk, uh, can you just tell me uh what the units uh that you like are maybe your top five uh units or top three or just give me give me your numbers that the units that you like for
1: archery elk i like uh i like 221 to 223 okay, and uh, 111 to 115 okay and uh those are the ones i like you know there's guys that like 231 as well which is also really good i just I I don't typically do that one. I do most of my deer hunting in that unit, and I'd usually – but there's some good elk in 231 as well.
0: Okay, and then for deer units, um, maybe some units that you like uh, in Nevada? 241, uh,
1: 245, uh, 231, um, 221 to 223. Uh, Those are the main three I do.
0: Okay, awesome. I'm sorry, 131
1: to 134 as well, those four units. Okay,
0: 131 to 134. Um, great. That's great stuff. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about Arizona. We've covered Nevada and, um, it's obvious from talking to you and, and, uh, I went on your website earlier this morning, just the phenomenal, uh, photos and trophies that you guys have gotten over there. So I want to congratulate you on that. I want to shift gears to Arizona. um, you've been guiding over here for many, many years and I uh, want you to highlight, uh, some of your guiding operation over here, uh, Mogollon Rim Outfitters. And, uh, first and foremost, let's start with, um, Archery Elk, uh, and maybe give, uh, say your top four or five units that you really like to guide in, or maybe some of the units that you've guided the most in. Um, can you start with that?
1: Yeah, an Archery Elk, you know, I, I bounced around a little bit because of, uh, you know, I, I get a lot of guys that have been putting in for a long time, and some of them don't want to wait for the real premium units, and they'd rather go elk hunting. And and for those types of guys, I I, I do hunts in six A, and um, so I kind of rotate around. I'll stay in six A for three or four years and burn up all those points with those guys, and then with the guys that have points that don't that want to go on a premium year, when they get enough points to draw the other units, I really like to hunt unit one. Um, okay. so. I kind of go back and forth in, you know, like the last, last year I was back in one and then I'll be in one again this year. And then next year I'll probably switch. Um, I'm really excited about this upcoming year because I've got, uh, I've got a great group of guides, you know, that have been with me forever. Like, you know, Paul Stewart, who used to be a big
0: competitor of mine. I know, you know, Paul. Sure. Absolutely. Phenomenal guide. Uh, and, and, and uh, just an unbelievable person as well. Yeah,
1: He's one of those few people that's actually – he's even a better person than he is a guide. And and,
0: <laughs> and that's saying a lot. You
1: know, he went to work yeah. for me about five years ago, full-time. And, um, and uh, Brian Chapman, who's been with me forever, and uh, and uh, Troy Smith, who's now been with me the last couple of years, who I've been trying to talk into forever. And the, I'm really excited, though, because this year I've got uh, Randy Elmer um, out of Flagstaff. Sure. Uh-huh. and uh, the Elmer brothers and uh, sure. he's going to start working for me this year full time. So I've, that's been something I've been working on for a long time and trying to talk him into it. I've, he's someone that I've looked up to forever as far as archery elk hunting goes and, uh, and uh, to get him on board is I'm really excited about. So I'll probably start doing some more stuff in nine and ten now and have him you know have him take those guys. Good. I just haven't in the past because I haven't had the guy to do it you know and we're always so busy in those other units and and, you know, he really likes to focus on 9 and 10. So I'm going to start taking guys this year in 9 and 10 also, you know, whatever he can take.
0: Sure, absolutely. And, and on your 6A hunts, uh, uh, tell me a little bit about the, the, the quality of bulls. Um, obviously, I think there's five or 600 tags in there. So, you know, there, it's a big unit. There's a lot of elk, but there is some competition. Uh, kind of give me the, the quality of bulls that guys should expect kind of on that hunt we'll usually kill
1: at least one bull over 350, a um, couple bulls around you know the 330 to 320 class. So I, I tell guys it's a 300 to a 360 type hunt. I mean, there are bigger bulls than that. We've killed some bigger bulls than that over the years, but it's not a real realistic expectation. So sure. most guys, if a guy is really holding out, I think it's a reasonable chance at killing a 350 bull. Um, and uh, But I use it mostly for guys. We get a lot of guys that want to go elk hunting and and uh, and be able to get drawn every five or six years, you know, and and then they can hunt bulls. On the average, our average is usually in the in that unit is probably right around three thirty, I would guess. You know, on the archery hunts, we have a little bit higher average on the late hunts, on the late rifle and and, and late muzzleloader hunts, but on the arch hunts, it's probably three thirty.
0: Yeah, while we're talking about that, um, you you seem to really have some incredible success on the late hunts. Uh, when you compare uh, outfitter to outfitter, you, you do really, really well across the state of Arizona on late hunts. Can you touch a little bit on the different units that you like uh, on those late hunts and, and maybe why your success is, is higher than most on that hunt?
1: You know, I, I like units like 23 and, um, and units like uh, 6A for the late hunts. Those are really the only two I do late hunts in. Over the years, I've done 6A and 23 forever. I like them because they're they're extremely physical hunts, and if you get the right guy that can really hike and and isn't afraid to really work and get into that really nasty country, we've been able to get some really good bulls out of there because we just you don't see other people on those bulls. The bulls that go into those really rough spots, you know you know how bulls are they'll go to the same places year after year to to winter, and if and if you can find a spot that's rough enough and nasty enough that no one else goes into a bull can gain some age and and so that's been kind of our trick is just going to the really rough stuff and spending a lot of time scouting and we've been really fortunate to be able to do the same units year after year because you know because bulls come back and forth we kind of get an inventory going from years past you know the, the bull that maybe wasn't quite big enough last year but we can go back this year into that spot because it's in a rough place the odds are no one else went in there and he's still around and a year older so that's probably been the biggest key to our success is hunting bulls that we've inventoried from years past.
0: Sure. And, and is there a specific uh, topography or is there a specific uh, actual, you know, something you look for, like a northeast-facing slope, you know, thickest stuff you can find? Uh, is there any advice you could give to someone out there? that's maybe going to try their hunt on their own. Uh, you know, do you look for manzanita? I mean, is there any one specific tip that you can give someone on those late hunts if they really want to do it on their own and get after it? Uh, what advice could you give them?
1: Man scouting for one, you know, uh, definitely scout on those because once, you know, those late hunts, scouting days are almost like extra hunting days because once you find one of those big bulls, he's not going to move more than likely. So it, you know, if you can get an extra weekend ahead of time, uh, as opposed to scouting as you go on the hunt, you know that, that's a huge key for someone to do it themselves. You know, instead of trying to figure it out while you're there, you know, get there ahead of time. And if you can find a bull four days for the season, you know, I can't tell you how many times in the past we found a bull four or five days for the season and he didn't go 300 yards in a week. You know,
0: um, so so you you can throw a blanket over those bulls that time of yeah. year because they're they're resting up from the rut and they're just they're they found a place where they can bed and feed basically and not have to walk 50 yards?
1: Yeah, we, we had, you know, it's funny, we killed two different 400 inch bulls and 23 a couple of years back within two miles of each other. And, um, both of them, I watched prior ahead of time and neither one of them went, I mean they had to have gone to get water, but they must've come right back because I was on them every morning and every evening and they didn't go 200 yards from a particular burn snag the whole time I was there. And the closest water was a half mile away so I mean I'm sure he went at night at some point got a drink and then but he kept coming back and and both those bulls when we killed them there were no other elk around and when we went up to you know after we shot him and walked up on the bulls there was so much sign in that little three four acre area that it, sure. it looked like there were a hundred bulls living there you know it was just they just those really big bulls just tend to until they get bumped they just don't seem to move you know and so I would really focus on the preseason scouting on that and and try to find places that other people aren't gonna go to. That's the biggest key because if there's someone else that's gonna go there with everybody's optics today, someone's gonna see them. You know, if it's someplace that's classable, you know, from a from a road, for example, you can bet somebody else has already seen them and there's gonna be competition. So try to find places that are away from people and and uh, and do a lot of preseason scouting on that do it yourself stuff.
0: That's that's awesome advice. Um Greg, we could talk till you and I both are blue in the face and I'll just have to have you on on another episode um, I want to kind of end this episode with uh, give me your 2015 fall forecast for Nevada and for Arizona, uh, both uh, on on the deer and elk in Nevada and uh, on the uh, elk. And uh, I, I might note that we'll talk about another time uh, you'd also do uh, late uh, archery, uh mule deer hunts um over-the-counter uh hunts but give me your forecast uh for 2015 for both states
1: i'm really excited about nevada because of the inventory we left last year um and i'm really excited about going back and finding some of those bucks and bulls from what we left last year i'm you know with, with as far as moisture goes nevada's been in a drought for the last five years now and they've only had about 50 to 60% of normal precipitation in the units I'm hunting, but yet they've had phenomenal antler growth three out of the last four years, and it's been based on May rains. So we're really figuring out over there that these mild winters that don't have a lot of snow and moisture, these deer are coming out of the winter earlier in better shape, and then there's green feet on the ground sooner because there wasn't as much snowpack, so they're they're getting a better start. And then uh, the problem with that, that that scenario is then that burns up real quick before the monsoons come. So you really need that may rains and we've been getting it three out of the last four years, may rains in Nevada. And that's why we've had such phenomenal antler growth over there. So this year we're once again at way below normal, just like we have been three out of the last four years or all four of the last four years. And now we're just hoping for late April and may rains over there. And if we get those like we've been getting, I think it's going to be phenomenal over there. Um, as far as Arizona, um, you know how it's been it's been it hasn't been like a super wet winter but it's been coming at the right times is my opinion and you know we've we've got uh you know it seems like we keep getting these really big storms and it warms right up again where everything's getting to pop you know all the grass there's a lot of green feed out there and so i think it's going to be a good antler growth here as long as we get some spring rain you know we continue to get the spring rains and uh i don't know what are your thoughts on that do you agree with that
0: yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, you know the virtually had no winter, but the benefit of that is our our animals weren't, uh, you know, having to paw for food and they, it wasn't stressful on their body. I think, you know, in February, we've had some timely storms and, and a few in March. And if, if we could just get maybe one more, I think we would have a, a really nice year. I think the spring greenup is one of the most important things. So when those elk are shedding their their antlers that they're on green feed right away and can, um, you know, not have a huge transition period from when their bodies are drawn down to when they're trying to put bone on their head. If, if they drop their antlers and their bodies are at, in good nutritional, uh, you know, condition, they can immediately start growing antler. And um, so, yeah, I mean, the optimist in me is, is hoping that we get, you know, another storm here in April um and uh we'll be off and running but you know we have no control over that but i i honestly think this year's going to be better than last year and um for elk and uh i'm optimistic and i just want to thank you for coming on the show with us uh you have been a uh i i have to say i've ran into you in the field and your guys in the field on hunts over the years and you guys have always been professional and have always been uh, very courteous, and uh, you're you're one of the uh, best guides we have in this entire Southwest, and and uh, just want to give you props on that, and uh, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, wish you the best. Uh, I know you're big into roping. I know you're you're doing a lot of roping right now in the off season, and and wish you the best with that, and uh, hope you have a great season both for elk and for deer in both states, and uh, look forward to seeing the animals that you guys put on the ground. And uh, I want you to give a chance there to um, have people be able to get a hold of you. I know your website is Mogion Rim Outfitters, um, but what's the best way for, for people to get a hold of you, Greg? Probably
1: through my website. It's got all my contact info on it. Um, you can, it's harder to A lot of people have a lot of time spelling Mogion Rim Outfitters, so you can just Google my name, Greg, K-R-O-G-H, um, and when you Google it, the first thing that comes up is my website, Muggy On Rim
0: Outfitters. Sure. And, uh, well, thanks for coming on with us. Thanks for sh- uh, shedding some of that insight uh, and that, that knowledge. And uh, it's obvious that you have a passion for what you do. And uh, I hope you have a great fall and, and uh, look forward to having you on again. We, we've we got miles of things to talk about, and you've been an awesome guest. So thanks a lot. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Anytime. All right, buddy. You take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to the J. Scott Outdoors Western Big Game Hunting and Fishing Podcast brought to you by GoHunt.com Insider. Research faster, hunt more, go to GoHunt.com forward slash insider and join today.